Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Well, I'm just trying to pay back a smidge of what you've done to help me through the years. Oh, my friend, you don't have that kind of time. Yeah, I know that. So I'm just going to give up. <laughs> That's right. Let's just pretend it all never happened. Yes. <laughs> Let's just, why don't we just call it even? <laughs> I'm you, good with wouldn't, that. Wouldn't you love to just walk into the bank, when, like, yeah. you, you know, to pay off your house or get a business loan or something? Just be like, yeah. you know what? I've thought it over. Let's just call it even. <laughs> why don't we, I've got a great idea for everybody. Let's take this trouble off your books. <laughs> Let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's just like bygones be bygones and part as friends. <laughs> I mean, you're thinking of numbers. I'm thinking of numbers. Let's just stop all this thinking. <laughs> and let's just agree on zero. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Elliot and Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today we're going to take a step back in time and into a bar from the past as we rub elbows with the beats. We may be in Greenwich Village. We could be in North Beach. Wherever our bar is for you, it's home to the hippest cats and the coolest kittens. So ask the bartender for some reasonably priced Chianti, wave the cigarette smoke away from your face, and dig the crazy scene right alongside us here in the bar. Today is a bonus episode. We stick with the theme of separating myth from reality when it comes to the beats. Grab your sticks and a glass of cheap Chianti while we talk. The man with the golden arm, back here in the bar. Ooh, Todd. Okay, I love that you brought up this movie. Thank you. Thank you very much for bringing this into the bar for our Beats bonus episode. Because... You know, we learned with the Beats, um, for those who listened to our wrap-up episode about this, there's a lot more mythology than than we thought. And we mm-hmm. had to try to pull mm-hmm. it away, separate it a little bit from reality. Of course, our last episode um, touched on the idea of the Beatnik as a character, right? We brought up Maynard G. Krebs. We brought right. up uh, how he helped influence Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. I mean, it's... right. It's a long list, right? The archetype of the beatnik, right? Yeah, the archetype of the beat, and it's really through the years influenced a lot of other characters. Um, and I would say, as we also talked about, Hollywood sanitized the beat movement, really sort of commercialized it, packaged it up, made it yeah, safe, yeah. right? Really tried to yeah. monetize it. Um, and, and really, these people came off, the caricatures of these folks came off as sort of these loafing intellectuals, mm-hmm, these eggheads, mm-hmm. these ne'er-do-wells, right? They were goofs. They weren't mm-hmm. very dangerous. And they were 
prototypical hipsters. They were hipsters before hipsters came along, right? Right, right. Um, you brought to the bar today the man with the golden arm, and I mm-hmm. would love to talk a little bit more about this movie. I'm aware of it. I know it takes a different look at mm-hmm. bee culture. Maybe it's a little bit more unvarnished. Maybe it's a little bit more honest. Certainly a little bit more gritty, right? That's true, yeah. And uh, I just want to say that I can't believe that it took us almost a couple minutes into this episode to use the word ne'er-do-well. I was really thinking uh, it would have been within the first couple sentences, but I'm so glad you did. Well, I was called a ne'er-do-well three times on the way up here into the, okay. the podcast headquarters. <laughs> to the headquarters. And that's to, by people I bar. know. I know. I was thinking, how many ways can we say, like, ne'er-do-well and um, ragamuffin and all those great words? Anyway, <laughs> but that's not what we are going to talk about today. We'll talk about that on another uh, episode, I'm sure. Um, but one of the things that I love about this movie, The Man with the Golden Arm, uh, is all the threads that tie this to, like, outsider pop culture. is that I don't even know if outsider pop culture is a thing. You tell me, Elliot. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron, but I think I know where you're going with Yeah, this. so I love a thread. You know how I love to pull a thread. So we're talking about, as I said, the man with the golden arm. We're not talking about the Bond films. The man with the golden gun, or oh. even Goldfinger. Oh, Those yeah, right. Good. We're not even talking about that ghostly fairy tale story. Uh, I don't know if you heard this about the man who had the golden arm, prosthetic arm, and he comes back to life to haunt his relatives who stole his arm. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Like, that's that's called a fugitive. Yeah, <laughs> I just think that's a hilarious um, ghost story because you know once you're never going to come back and talk to your family. <laughs> if I had a golden arm, I'd be like, see ya. <laughs> so like it was an actual fake arm made out of gold. Yeah, like that's gonna work. How heavy would but that have been? I don't know, but they anyway. I'll tell you the ghost story sometime. Yeah, they stole I look forward it. To that. after he died, and then he came back and haunted. That's him. like a uh, bonus uh, episode uh, to the bonus episode. It is. It is. It's a bonus bonus. Um, but let's talk about the man with the golden arm. The 1955 American film classic was directed by Otto Preminger, and it was based on a novel by the same name, by uh, a very well-known author now by the name of Nelson Algren. And there's a little tea to spill on this relationship, as you can imagine. Oh, I always boy. got some now, tea in my pocket. Now I know why you chose this movie. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Todd and his secret creative lawsuit agenda. That's totally it. And and uh, I've got some good controversy on this one but let me uh for those of you who may have heard the name of the movie and are less familiar it starred frank sinatra i hear he did well for himself mm, i um, heard of him yep eleanor parker kim novak arnold stang darren mcgavin oh uh, the uh, old man from a christmas yeah. story yes yes love it see we're tying threads together already so in short it's a dark story of the underbelly of society drug addict card dealer he gets clean while he's in prison learns the drums while in prison and then struggles to stay clean in the outside world so the novel was written in 1949 Mm-hmm. And it's critically considered one of the seminal novels of the post-World War II 
uh, America. Like you've mentioned this in the beat yeah, um, yeah. episodes in the past. That was such a heavy influence of yeah. the beats. Yeah, I mean, that was really when they were taking off. Yeah, yeah. That was when Kerouac was traveling around. Yeah, yeah, 1949. And, uh, and this was like the peak of it. So it's also considered Nelson Algren's greatest and most enduring work. It was published right at the height of the Red Scare. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of funny. This is a little diss here. It's a subtle piss-off insulting his former fellow Communist Party members. Uh, he was a communist in the 30s. <laughs> like like yeah. an, an unabashed, like admitted communist? Like card-carrying. Wow, card -carrying he was a red. Communist. Okay, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this book was a sort of, it's a little bit of a piss-off to two guys. One, I'm going to call them out. I'm going to call him out right now. Okay. Louis Budins, uh -huh. uh, who was an activist and okay. a journalist named Howard Rushmore. And so what they did, they committed the cardinal sin. They sold out. They started telling on Communist Party members to the FBI. Ah, so they flipped. Okay. They did. So there's more tea there. We maybe we'll, we should probably write this up in a in a blog post or something because that's right. not really getting too much into the beats. But okay. Anyway. So, this is why I think Algren was a good example of the beat writers. He gathered inspiration from, and he wrote about this world of drunks, pimps, prostitutes, freaks, drug addicts, prize fighters, corrupt politicians, and hoodlums. I'm sure ne'er-do-wells, too. Yeah, I, I would put all of those people in the ne'er-do-well bucket. They fall in. I love that it's like drug addicts, prize fighters, and corrupt politicians. <laughs> I heard that I read about that. And also just uh, freaks, which I assume just means freaks, in this yeah. case. Well, I would think it looked like in the carny kind of mid-century definition, like people biting the heads off chickens and stuff I like that. I think it's... Those those living on the fringes. Yes. We'll say it like yes. that. They, they could be my relatives that I love dearly. Okay. Um, okay. So anyway, the screen rights to Algren's novel, The Man with the Golden Arm, they were first acquired in 1949 when it was published on behalf of John Garfield. He was planning to star in and make the movie version. Due to the... Uh, unacceptable, let's say, controversial story okay. of, of I'm doing air quotes here, quite illegal drug use. Mm. Production got delayed and delayed and delayed. Sure, so, no one wanted to touch it. No, no. And uh, that's part of the controversy. And isn't, I, I think it was even like beyond that, right? Because this was, this gets into like the the code, right? Like the Hayes Code, the Decency Code of Hollywood, Yes, right? exactly. Okay, yeah. okay. So that's so even though it might have been a good story, I mean obviously it sounds like the book was great. Um, people just really weren't willing to wade into these waters it sounds like. Not in the mid 50s America. New. Right. right yeah. I mean the book was widely loved and sure. widely recognized. Um but that's, you know, that's one thing as we've heard in some of our episodes um already uh with the uh, authors um, they ran into a little bit of hot water. But when you start putting Hollywood money and production behind this, it right. starts to get real critical. Anyway, funny thing happened on the way to getting this movie made. Uh, the actor who had bought the rights, John Garfield, he died in 1952. And 
The film rights were then bought by um, Hungarian-Austrian director Otto Preminger from his estate, from John Garfield's estate. So was it the communists who killed Garfield? Like, I, do we know this? I, I, was it the I FBI? I can't, I can neither confirm or deny that. Freemasons, uh, no. got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that's a little bit of the novel that got to the movie. So how about a little bit about the movie? Just, do you want to do a quick summary of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you brought this up, I, I actually went and uh, watched the movie. We'll, we'll post a link to this on our episode page because the movie actually... Where I stumbled on it when I started to do my research is actually the movie is posted to the Wikipedia page about Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. man with the golden arm. And you can just literally watch the whole movie. I mean, how that's that's possible, I don't know. I'm sure it's in other places as well. But since I found it in the first place I looked, there's no need to keep looking. So uh, (laughs) mainly because I'm lazy. Uh, like, like I'm a lazy ne'er do well. I'm I'm the uh, you know you might consider That's me the right. Maynard G. Krebs of this podcast. You're you're a hoodlum, aren't you? Yeah. But but you were talking about this and uh, yeah, tell us yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. do it. Give us a little quick summary. Okay. Of the plot okay. Here. Cl- and I know it's complex, but yeah, yeah. yeah, a, yeah I know I'm, you can you can make it brief. I'll try to yeah. I'll try to Siskel and Ebert this thing. Okay. Here we go. So uh, Sinatra played this character called Frankie Machine. <laughs> I love that, yeah, by the I love way. That name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a great name. So as you mentioned earlier, he's a reformed drug addict, and he was in prison, the the narcotic farm in Lexington, Kentucky, right? And so yep. while he's in there, he gets a set of drums. He learns how to drum to jazz music, and and he he kind of gets this new outlook on life, right? Yeah. So he gets himself clean. He does his time. And uh, he then returns to the the kind of down-on-the-heels, run-down neighborhood uh, on the north side of Chicago that he was from um, before he went to jail, right? So he soon meets friends and acquaintances. So there's this kind of um, uh, tableau, this sort of fast sequence at the beginning of the film where you start to see all of these characters quickly reintroduce themselves, right? And this goes into this, this... bucket of of people we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. so we have of course con men gambling men you know illegal like bookmakers people like this not not like people running a casino but you know bookmakers drug dealers so basically all the things that he was getting away from when he when he went to prison so he makes his way home you know he goes and sees all these people makes his way home to his wife named zosh who's living in a wheelchair from a car crash that, uh, as we learn, was caused by Frankie the his, Machine's yeah. drunk driving, his right? Drunk driving. So this is yeah. this is a little bit, you know, so you go into yeah. the script so far, this is a little bit of a morality lesson. Yeah. Like, this is getting not... A, getting a little bit uh, sensitive here. Yeah, yeah, it's not, you know, so far so good. The message is, is clear. He's a, he's a bad guy who has to live with his consequences from doing bad things. So she's naturally, as you can imagine, bitter, but she's also manipulative. Um, yeah, so he, yeah. you know, he definitely feels guilty about it and she knows that and so you know a lot of times when she wants to twist the dagger <laughs> it's sticking yeah. in his rib she she does it so he wants to make a new way for himself he wants to play drums for a big band right he thinks he's talented right. he thinks he's got the juice well lo and behold 
you know, old habits die hard, so he's back on drugs due to lack of support from his wife, due to all of mm-hmm. these characters who have re-entered his life, and uh, he is doing these marathon all-night card games, right? He's a dealer at these games, so he's trying to make a fast buck. He gets this tryout as a drummer, but then he, um, because he'd spent 24 hours straight dealing in a poker game, <laughs> he, he gets beaten up, he desperately needs a fix, all this sort of stuff that happens in advance of this audition, right? Right. So goes to the audition, he's, he's in withdrawal, so he's he's can't keep the beat, you know. He's got the shakes, all the stuff. Ruin his yeah. ruins his chances of of landing the drumming job. So again, I would argue this is actually a message. Like like kids, right. stay off the drugs, or your stay dreams, off the drugs. You yeah. will never achieve your dreams, right? Don't be a ne'er do well. Keep the beat. Yes, and yeah, so to speak. And then from there, the story starts to get a little bit complex because there's, of course, lies, deception, there's suicide, there's cold turkey at the end of this. So we actually, there's an ending that leaves a lot open to interpretation, right? So, I I mean, I don't, without getting too far into it, folks can look on IMDb. As we talked about, we can go onto Wikipedia, the movie's there, so you can jump in, jump out, you can sort of see what we're what we're talking about a little bit but that's i would say do you agree that's kind of the gist of the film more or yeah. less yeah and and the the book by algren um was a little different uh it, it they're you know the same some some of the same characters some of the same action but right from the get-go the making of that film that you just explained caused quite a stir uh, on sort of every front and that's the interesting part because you said before when we've talked about the beats and some of the authors and um, some of the legal troubles that they were in yeah that 1955 America wasn't ready for the art of the beats um, it it had to be pasteurized and sanitized but that's what um, that's what Algren, the author, wanted to talk about. And, you know, you can imagine if you're doing a giant Hollywood budget movie with that taboo subject of drug addiction right at the center of it, how much uh, of a hot spotlight that's going to get. And I, I think we, we need to also remind listeners, this is two years before On the Road came out. Right, right, So, right, right. you know, people sort of kind of knew about the beats, but it really hadn't sort of been codified in major media yet so your idea of the freaks and the outliers that's exactly what these people were thought of as yeah so uh, the author nelson algren represents this better than anybody i really kind of found myself lost in a in a hole of all the the things that he was about because he was uh initially brought in to write the script for the movie and he and the production soon parted ways. It seems he and uh, Otto Preminger didn't really see eye to eye, which, you know, that happens in Hollywood. Like, especially if one of them's taller than the other. Yeah, one of them's like 6'4", and the other's like 5'4". It's oh, hard wow. to see eye to eye. But anywho's, um, so 
I was like, oh, okay, there's a controversy there. Like the guy that the guy that was <laughs> really representing, I, I sniffed it out. I'm, I'm going to be like the Hollywood you're, you're, hunt. You're the McGruff the crime dog when it comes to uh, <laughs> yeah. creative controversy. Check, uh, I like it. You're gonna okay. You are so gonna love this quote that I found um, from the book called Never a Lovely So Real, The Life and Work of Nelson Algren. It's by a guy named Colin Asher. All right, And you're going to love this quote. Okay, here's the quote. He had spent the previous year rewriting a book he couldn't stomach and running from a wife he didn't love. <laughs> I mean, I mean, damn. <laughs> he was, okay, it gets better. He was agonized by the State Department's refusal to issue him a passport. They distrusted his leftist political views, and he had wandered from state to state, from bus stop to cheap motel, desperate to find a place where he might be at peace to write the way he wanted to. He knew Hollywood was no place for authors of distinction, but couldn't argue with $1,000 a week. He was soon in the company of the Astro-Hungarian director Otto Preminger, who had bought the rights to his novel and wanted him to write the screenplay. Bringing Algren down Wilshire Boulevard in his hot red Cadillac, Preminger chose the worst first question to ask his new collaborator. How come you know such terrible people you write about? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, I mean, that's like, that's not from the movie. That's. That's about the guy that wrote the book. I mean, he <laughs> right. was going, going from bus stop to cheap motel. I love that. He, hey. Writing a book he couldn't stomach and running from a wife he didn't love. <laughs> Write what you know, man. Yeah. I mean, he was a com- so he was a complex guy, and the the Hollywoodizing of his novel it just made his blood boil. He hated schlock, avoided happy endings. He hated that predictable narrative of good and evil mm-hmm. and Frank Sinatra man that was you know he just couldn't deal with that he didn't love old blue eyes well he didn't not in this particular case right yeah. right um, sure too squeaky clean he was he was he was a little too mainstream and so Algren was quickly replaced by a guy named Walter Newman and Preminger proceeded to change the plot and the characters extensively from the original novel, which brought just more and more bitterness oh, yeah. from Algren. Um, <laughs> Toss more so logs on the fire. <laughs> so it just got worse and worse. He had a friend photographer named Art Shea who asked Algren to pose below the film's marquee when it came out. And and Algren said, what does that movie have to do with I me? Love it. I'm like, me? Yeah, <laughs> man. Just let it go, dude. Yeah, he's up. <laughs> so did he, but, like, he, did he get money? For, like, even though he must have gotten, well, like, you know, when they bought the book, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. He you got know, money. It's not, yeah, yeah, it's not like... He was, le- you know, he just didn't get to put his thumbprint all over, but he still got something for it. Yeah, but but like, think about what you've told us about the beats. Like, they were uncompromising. Right, right. right? it's all about the integrity and, of the and, work. Yeah, and so you get an author that's uncompromising, and you get an Austro-Hungarian director that's <laughs> not, uncompromising. Not known for their sense of humor, generally. <laughs> that's right. Shit goes down. Yeah, yeah, fur starts to fly, yeah. So that's an interesting bit about how the movie got made. You gave us a little bit of the plot. But I think for me, and you know more about this than I think than I do, you, for me, the thing that captures the spirit of the beats, besides just the, 
the the narrative and the subject matter. It's all those elements that brought this movie to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the biggest thing, remember, the guy is a jazz drummer. The main character is a jazz right. drummer, right? So you really need to have a movie that would have a soundtrack that was jazz. So makes yeah, sense. So on on this point, even though they sort of screwed up when it came to the script or maybe the casting. And with regard to the casting, if memory serves me correctly, didn't Sinatra get nominated for an Academy Award for this? Didn't this sort of yeah, bring him back, yeah. like, like reboot his career? It did. Actually, the, uh, the movie garnered um, several nominations. It was hugely successful yeah, for that yeah. time because it was so gritty. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood. yeah, it was so different from, from what everybody was used to, and suddenly this was dropped in their hometown, right? This was in their theater. Yeah. So I think the other thing with regard to the soundtrack was the fact that one thing Hollywood got right was they actually approached jazz musicians. They approached people who knew yeah, what they were doing. Yeah. So the film score, which, again, people can find, I'm sure you can probably stream it on YouTube or Spotify or wherever, um, the film score was composed, arranged, and conducted by... Um, uh, some some unknown guy named Elmer Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I've heard <laughs> yeah, of him. Maybe, I think I've maybe heard just of him, a little yeah. bit. Um, he went on to do some he stuff. He did. And then there were two key jazz artists who were part of the film as well. Sheldon Shelley Mann, uh, who yeah. taught Sinatra to actually play the drums for this part. And then Shorty Rogers, who was the trumpet and flugelhorn player. And one of the principal uh-huh. creators of, of West Coast jazz or cool jazz, right? We talked about that a little bit with Dave Brubeck and some of these yeah, other you, folks. Yeah, you've mentioned Shorty Rogers in yep, the past. Exactly. So both of these guys are actually in the movie. Um, they have yeah, sort of yeah. cameos, so to speak, although they're characters, right? So Shorty is playing the arranger and the conductor, and he's at the audition that, that Frankie the Machine screws up. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And those, like, I think you know more about this than I do, but uh, the name Shorty Rogers, and I've heard Shelly Mann. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember the context of when we talked about Shorty Rogers. He's played with everybody, right? So, yeah, both guys were everywhere in the music world, right? So they played with all the greats, Woody Herman, Will Bradley, Mm -hmm. Les Brown, Eartha Kitt, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong. Okay, uh, and even the monkeys daydream believe for himself. <laughs> so yeah, there's all a, over the map. So there's man. a wide range of uh, artists yeah, there so that uh, Shorty Rogers had uh, had uh, has worked with. He clearly had a long career. All right, uh, but one more thing, and we've talked about this also in a in a past episode. Uh, you know how much I love Three Little Bops, um, the jazzy yes. reinterpreting the of the Three Little Pigs. So. In 1957, yeah, yeah. Shorty Rogers was the guy who composed the music for Fritz Freeling's Three Little Bops. That's where I remember you talking about it. That was like an like episode 18. Wasn't yeah, it, yeah. Dig, dig in the crates. Morning cartoons. Yeah, go back, listeners, yeah. and look. I 
I mean, I have loved yeah. this cartoon my whole life from the first time I saw it. So please, please, please do yourself a favor and check it out. You will love it. And although uncredited, um, it's widely believed that our friend Shelly Mann also played the drums in the Three Little Bops. So, oh, yeah, man. so these guys have a lot of tie-ups, even outside of just this movie. Right? I mean, but that's Hollywood, right? People collaborate all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But talk about all the threads that are tying things together there. Wow. Hey, uh, speaking of tying things together, I'd love to connect with a fresh beer for the second half of our conversation. Yeah, and uh, I'm seeing my credit card connecting with your bar tab, dude. So, okay, everyone, we're going to step away and sort this mess out, and we'll see you back here in just a minute. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right, nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no, some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Yeah, how do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And, if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff, and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website, or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now, back to the bar. So, Todd, I need to jump into this. So we've referenced yeah. a couple episodes already. We've talked about the beats, but I think we're leaving on the table. I mean, this is a podcast about pop culture and design. So right. let's talk about the design aspect of this movie for a moment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, another kind of up-and-comer uh, that worked on this, uh, a guy named... Um, uh, Sa- Saul Bass, I think is how you pronounce it. <laughs> Something like that, uh, yeah. Something like that, yes. I think he went on to be called Saul Bass. But um, a lot of people, as I was looking into this, you know, he certainly became well-known for film oh, titles. Gosh, yeah. And and a lot of um, a lot of people were saying this was his first title sequence, but it really wasn't. 
he it was early in his career of title sequences, but it just radically changed how Hollywood and the public saw the use of titles. They saw them like what he did, um, and we'll talk a little bit about what it looks like and stuff. But what he did is he turned it into just a mini encapsulation of the story to tease the viewers, and it acted almost like an opening act to the feature. Right, exactly, and of course we've done. Um an episode about TV show titles we really love. Right. We talk about Saul Bass in that one. Yeah. And I think another great example, if for a more contemporary example that people are probably familiar with, is really how James Bond movies, when you have the titles yeah, at the beginning of James yeah. Bond movies, there's a lot of symbolism that happens later in the films, and there's layers and animations and, and things like that. So that's that's obviously a little bit more contemporary, a little bit richer. But if I remember correctly, didn't he, in addition, like how I first heard about this movie, uh, wasn't the movie itself, but it was the poster, because he also did yeah, the poster. Same here. Yeah, yeah, same here. So in addition to the title sequence, he did the poster. And what he decided, because it was clearly a taboo subject in the mid-1950s, right? Um, he decided to do it animated and conceptual, which that was a little different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just describing the look of the poster and the um, opening title, it's animated. It's black on white cutouts of bars. And they literally dance around to uh, Elmer Bernstein's jazzy, kind of film noirish score, and they form patterns, and they fracture, and they come together, and ultimately they form this iconic-looking, disjointed arm. And I'm sure everyone has seen. Yeah, this, we'll we'll but post it, this on our, our episode yeah, page for sure. It's just it's a beautiful disjointed arm, which represents so much, and. Uh, Saul Bass wanted to create a sensation with these titles. He felt like he had the opportunity with this movie because of the subject matter. Um, And he chose that disjointed arm as the central image because, you know, it's the man with the golden arm. That's kind of on the nose, but it relates to um, heroin addiction. Yeah, and and um, card dealing. Right, right. right. Well, what I also love about this idea is that the titles, I, I feel like the poster, going back to our jazz album designs that we've talked about, and even some of the illustration styles that we also talked about, I feel this sort of took that idea, that style, and because it had this jazz soundtrack, it's mm-hmm. almost this idea of, hey, why not animate what the jazz album art would do to a jazz soundtrack, right? Right, right. And so this is almost a living jazz album, I think. So actually, the uh, music and the titles were being worked on at the same time. Oh, that's great. I love that. So what Elmer, because we're on first name basis now, what Elmer did was give Saul a click track. So he, he didn't really know oh, the power okay. of the music. So in some ways, he wasn't. He was kind of informed by the style, but it didn't, it left it open for him to really uh, make this art sing. And there's a book that I found, um, and you probably uh, have seen it. It's called Saul Bass, A Life in Film and Design. It's by an author named Pat Kirkham. 
And she writes, the challenge facing Saul was how to create a symbol that captured the drama and intensity of the film without resorting to sensationalism. Sure. So, you know, keeping it classy, Saul. And then she goes on to say, the title sequence was equally compelling. Here was modern art on the movie screen. And in her book, she says, Saul stated that the intent of this opening was to create a mood that was spare, gaunt, with driving intensity that conveyed the distortion and jaggedness, the disconnectedness and disjointedness of the addict's life, who was the subject of the film. Um, so this is what's so funny. You had mentioned the poster before. Yeah. And it's iconic. The title sequence, iconic. There's other iconic posters out there, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But how important was this poster and title design? When the prints of the movie went out to theaters, Otto Preminger accompanied them with a note instructing the projectionist to only run the first reel after the curtains were drawn back. He wanted everyone to make sure that they saw the titles in context of the whole movie. And uh, there's even another story that I uncovered uh, from a book called The World and Its Double, The Life and Work of Otto Priminger by Chris Fujiwara. And he says, Priminger liked the design so much, he threatened to pull the picture if an exhibitor changed the advertising. Oh, I love so, that. I mean, yeah. That's kind of like, design hey, your champion. client's really yeah. digging this, yeah. right? Yeah. What was that? I mean, was that the poster is not very specific, like it's not very graphic in the sense of like it's not showing like, for example, there's a version of uh, Junkie by William Burroughs, not like a more contemporary version that was like a, a reissue of that book that came out in the 90s, if I remember correctly. And the cover has kind of this Saul Bass kind of arm, but it actually shows a syringe coming out of it. You know, and there wasn't anything like that in the poster. No, not in the original um, release. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, Yeah, just it has the the crooked, fractured arm and um, a couple uh, images of the uh, actors, but uh, definitely ties in with the title. And um, so... It, really interesting altogether, you know, that that one piece of art um, ties this, uh, the period together, 1949 through sort of mid-50s, mm-hmm. and it addresses some of the uh, controversy that was happening then. So what have we learned in all this, Elliot? Well, the main thing I learned was that uh, Frank Sinatra was secretly a beat. <laughs> uh, so I'm talking about like when you think about the myth of beat culture versus the reality. Oh, that. I learned that yeah. Frank Sinatra was not really a beat. <laughs> okay, there you go. And um, because it was such a taboo subject for this movie, Otto Preminger literally broke the Hollywood production code. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you and and again, I mentioned this earlier. We're going to write about this um, with a little bit extra news and put it on our blog because uh, he really did change the way movies are seen. Um, with from with what movie. I remember, I mean, he basically made like 
if I remember correctly, the way the code worked, you had to submit a script, and I can't remember mm-hmm. was it the gov- I can't remember who ran the 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 people ultimately in the Hayes code. Like I, I think it was the MPA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was. But didn't the studios yeah. kind of self regulate so that the, in hopes to kind of keep the government's tentacles like off the industry? So they. Well, they ha- yeah, and what they had to do was um, had to kind of honor the code because theaters wouldn't right. distribute. Right. Yeah, movies. they didn't want and to run the risk of people complaining, getting yeah. shut down, yeah. and all that. So basically, they went ahead and Preminger just made this movie and kind of was like, I don't care what you think, you know. And yeah. uh, but you know, yeah. for a guy coming out of World War II, I can understand this probably wasn't the the biggest thing and. Uh, someone you know from continental Europe would have seen in the last few years. It probably didn't scare him that much. So he went ahead. He makes this movie, and uh, you know it's just basically like like come and get me, right? Like he he almost right, dared right. the studio to like he's making this movie. They would have lost money, right? If right. it hadn't, oh, hadn't yeah, come out. Clearly. So, and I think what it ended up doing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it kind of opened the possibilities to more. To, you know, to use the word gritty, um, uh, you know, more more realistic depictions of certain things in people's lives, sure. you know, that could actually yeah. happen on, on the screen. It was more authentic after that. It wasn't quite so sugar-coated. Yeah, and I would say with what Otto Preminger did to change uh, the Motion Picture Association in the mid-50s... Um, the players that were also part of the movie uh, were well chosen because they were masters of their craft. Yeah. Not talking just Sinatra, who was certainly um, a superstar, but Shorty Rogers, Shelly Mann, Elmer Bernstein, Saul Bass. And as much as Preminger changed Hollywood, these guys tilted their art uh, off of sort of the normal axis as well. Yeah, I think it was a collective effort for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a world-class collection. Um, The last thing I'll say in in kind of tying all this together is going back to my friend, the author, uh, Nelson Algren. He wasn't happy with this movie. He wasn't (laughs) happy with Otto Preminger. He wasn't happy with Frank Sinatra. He wasn't happy with the whole scene. He was somewhere between a bus stop and a cheap motel being unhappy. But, But the friction between his view of this kind of underbelly um, that was so important for him to spotlight and for the beats um, to uh, recognize had to be repackaged for mainstream America, yeah. as you yeah. said a couple times. And compromise wasn't in his or Otto Preminger's vocabulary. Yeah, well, when I think you've sort of sold the rights at that point, you know, the director and the studio are the ones who are going to win. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so, last thing I'll say. Is you know I love a thread. Yes, <laughs> I love to pull. A you thread. love a scene and, and you love a thread. I love a scene. I love a thread. There's so many to pull here on the man with the golden arm, and I'll tell you what, Algren's very next novel asks the question: Why lost people sometimes develop into greater humans uh, than those who have never been lost in their whole lives? And the title of it was A Walk on the Wild Side. Ah, that sounds familiar. It sounds... So, 
you know, we might start talking about that next time. <laughs> I love it. Nice hint. Way to drop a hint. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. See, it's a thread, man. Tying them all it together. It really, really is. Well, thank you for bringing this movie uh, into the bar today. I mean, I guess you could bring it into the bar because you could watch it on your phone. Sure, yeah. And all this... All this walk down memory lane and tying threads has made me thirsty. Oh, me too. Okay. Well, Todd, uh, twist. You buy. You buy. You buy that. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I, I left my wallet. See, I jumped. I'll tell you I, what. I, I will. Uh, I just left okay. my wallet out in the car. You wait here, and I'll be right back. Uh, okay. Okay, Elliot. That sounds great. I, I've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess uh, our listeners can figure out where it's about to go next. So how about we yeah. say goodbye and uh, we will catch up with everyone very, very soon when uh, Todd continues being narrator and uh, really excited to see uh, what we talk about next. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show, or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.